Hello everyone, and welcome to Lockdown Law. I have another great episode for you today, and I hope you enjoy. If you have the time and the means, I'm asking you to please support this podcast. Ideally, if you could sign up on Patreon and support Lockdown Law for as little as $5 per month, you'll get early access to episodes. I'd really appreciate your support. Again, Lockdown Law on Patreon, and you can join the community. Or you could visit my website, www.lockdownlaws.com, and donate. You can also email me through the website and let me know what's been your favorite episode so far. And finally, if nothing else, I would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcast. Either way, thank you for listening. Thank you for your support. And I hope you enjoy this episode. On this episode of Lockdown Law, we are fortunate to have Mr. Ken Belmard. Ken, good morning. Hello, how are you today? I'm doing well, and yourself? Doing great. And Ken, you've been an attorney for 30 years, is that right? That's correct. And what's your practice? Uh, My primary practice has been in the field of Indian law. Um, Something I desired to get into, that's the reason I went to law school. So I've been doing it for 30 years. And are you Native American? Yes, I'm a member of the Kaw Nation, K-A-W. It's a small tribe in north central Oklahoma. We're the original inhabitants of the state of Kansas. Actually, our um, real name is Kazi Nikashinga, which became Kansa, which became Kaw. But it, during the time when they were kicking us out of Kansas in 1872, uh, they they were uh, polite enough to name the state after after us after they kicked us out of it. And you've also done some work for the Cherokee Nation. Is that correct? You know, I actually had done quite a bit of work for the Katua Band of Cherokees. I was their their attorney general for 12 years. And um, just as a point of reference, there are three federally recognized Cherokee entities. There's the Eastern Cherokees, which are uh, remained in, in the southwest Oklahoma. There's the Katua Cherokees, which are also known as the Old Settlers, that were Cherokees that moved to what's now Arkansas and uh, part of Oklahoma, the Arkansas-Oklahoma border. They moved between 1817 and 1835. And then there's the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma, what's known as the Cherokee Nation, which were basically the folks that were... uh, the subject of the Trail of Tears. Got it. Yeah. In doing the research for this episode, that's uh, one of the things that really surprised me was how diverse um, just the the Cherokee Nation is. Um, During the Civil War, I think they even split up and and some fought for the North and some fought for the South. Is that right? Yes, that is correct. Uh, There were factions of uh, all the civilized tribes and, and you know, uh, obviously, we all know the Civil War. It was also a 
always heard stories about brothers fighting for the North and the other brother fighting for the South. That, that the uh, civilized tribes, if you will, they, they had the same experience. Okay. And we're going to lay some foundation now when you say civilized tribe, there's a reason you, you use that term. So um, we're going to discuss a very important Supreme Court case. This was a, a busy term for the Supreme Court this year. And in this Supreme Court case, um, the Supreme Court heard some cases arising out of eastern Oklahoma, correct? That's correct. And um, the two main cases that were consolidated were McGirt versus Oklahoma and Sharp versus Murphy. And what happened in these cases was there was a, a criminal conviction in state court and in Oklahoma State Court. And on appeal, um, a criminal defense attorney made some very interesting arguments that the state of Oklahoma doesn't have jurisdiction um, under this treaty that goes back to 1866, I think. And so their argument was that these criminal convictions should be thrown out. And this is such a very interesting case because um, it, it, the amount of territory that it covers is 19 million acres, 11 counties, including the city of Tulsa, which is the second largest in the state, could all be subject to um, basically Native American jurisdiction. Is that accurate so far? Yeah, that's that's generally accurate, yes. And... Um, the, my first question is, we'll go over the five tribes, but it, it appears to me that the Muskegee Creek Nation, um, this is the, they're the, the most significant um, with respect to these, this jurisdictional issue of the five tribes because of this treaty, correct? Yes. Um, so after the Civil War, they, at the end of the treaty period, because there was an idea that Indian territory was the place where the tribes from the southeast Oklahoma, which we refer to in part as the, the five civilized tribes, they were moved to Oklahoma, what's now Oklahoma, it's the eastern part of Oklahoma, with the intent that the eastern side of the state was going to be an Indian state at some point. But it was it was a place, Oklahoma was a place where they basically moved 39 different tribes from their aboriginal areas uh, to a place that I, I always argue that the reason Indians weren't living in Oklahoma before we were removed here is no one in their right mind would live here because of the weather. You know, we're going to have four seasons in a day here. So the Indians were too smart to live in Oklahoma, but they but we got removed here anyway. Got it. So... Um, the five tribes that this covers are the Muskegee or Creek Nation. Yeah, Musco Muskogee. Muskogee. Muskogee, thank you. Thank yeah. you. Yes. Muskogee uh, or Creek Nation, um, the Choctaw, the Chickasaw, the Seminole, and the fifth is the Cherokee, correct? That's correct. Okay. And 
So arguably, this Supreme Court decision affects all five of these tribes, correct? Yes, uh, I, I would say it, it affects them directly, and I would say that it has application to, to every tribe in the United States. Okay. Oh, interesting. To every tribe in the United States. Wow. Yeah, and, and here's, uh, here's why. Um, so this was all about whether the, um, the Creek Reservation still existed. And so in, in determining the factors that led to the Supreme Court's holding in that case, if you apply it to every nation, particularly those that, that had, a, had specific treaties, then you can come up with, with uh, similar understandings of whether those reservations still exist or not. So we can make this bold statement according to that logic that um, based on the Supreme Court decision, um, Native Americans cannot be tried in state courts. Within, if their reservation boundaries are still intact. So it's all, it's all a question of jurisdiction. And part of jurisdiction is having um, actual geographical boundary that you can execute your laws in. And so if you had a treaty relationship that established your meets and bounds, then unless there are specific acts of Congress, specific um, subsequent treaties that, that disestablish those boundaries, then those boundaries legally and technically still exist. And so you have an exercise of jurisdiction with, within those geographical boundaries. Now, the issue always is when it comes to Indian country is what, what are your bundle of jurisdictional sticks do you have left to be able to, to exercise within those jurisdictional boundaries? Okay. And let's get into the cases specifically. So the McGirt versus Oklahoma case, McGirt was a member of the Seminole Nation, correct? That's correct. And the Sharp versus Murphy case, he was a member of the of the uh, Creek Nation, correct? That's correct. That's yes. Well, let me hit the pause button for a second. Uh, Murphy doesn't sound like a very uh, Native American last name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, is there is there like a certain percentage that? Um, of Native American blood you have to have to, to qualify? It, it depends on the tribe. The, each tribe has their own ability to determine their membership. And so blood quantum, if you will, it's, it's the most interesting thing. You could, you could have podcasts all day long on this issue, but, but Native Americans are the only human beings that, that have a pedigree like a, a horse or a dog does. I mean, it's, it's something that's, it's totally crazy, but that's how the um, federal government made determinations as to when they were wanting to determine you're an Indian so they can move you off your land. You know, they they came up this degree of Indian blood, unfortunately, or fortunately as the case may be, which is another argument, tribes have adopted the, to some extent, the blood quantum idea. So some tribes, depending on their nature, their cultural attributes, have set 
different standards for what blood quantum potentially, or some tribes have just gotten completely away from that, go to ancestry. And then they determine their, um, what, whatever that requirement's going to be for membership. Uh, some, a lot of folks uh, that are tribal members now, or they have blood from other different tribes. Some tribes, you can't be dual members. You can't be um, a member of tribe A and tribe B. You have to make choice a choice. Um, so er every tribe has their own rules, and I would venture to guess that no two of them are alike. They would be similar, but but not alike. Got it. Okay. And so McGirt, he was convicted in state court of um, three serious sexual offenses. Um, and in the Sharp versus Murphy case, Patrick Murphy was um, a member of the Creek Nation, and he was convicted of murder um, back in 1999. Is that correct? Yes. He was actually given the death penalty in the year 2000, I think. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, I think that's, that's why they were fighting so hard on this, on this jurisdictional area. Wow, the, the wheels of justice move slowly. It only took uh, 20 years to get to the Supreme Court? <laughs> yeah, that's uh, unusual with tribal cases. Okay, um, so let's take a, a step back, because in the beginning you used the term um, the five tribes, the five civilized tribes, and that's not your term. Um, why were they called the five civilized tribes, these tribes out of eastern Oklahoma? So historically, when those tribes were beginning their relationships with the invading Europeans and they developed their relationships, they um, adopted slavery. And so um, in these, some of these uh, members of those tribes actually became uh, plantation owners. And as we all know, in the, in the Southeast United States, you're going to have a plantation, slavery went along with it. So as this development of these ideas of, you know, what kind of Indians are out there, it just, it, it just stuck that, well, these folks are just like us. They're civilized because they, they own slaves. And they, they also adopted, along with, with slavery, they adopted the, um, the cultural, um, I guess the social manner, if you will, of of the Europeans, you know, living in houses, wearing wearing um, Western clothes, that type of thing. So they that they just adopted that that whole social system of the in the southeastern United States. Yeah, it's pretty horrible that um, they referred to them as civilized tribes because they practiced slavery. Yes, and and one thing, um, you know, I, before I might, I don't want to get too far uh, ahead of us, but you had mentioned the Treaty of eighteen sixty six. So when when the tribes were removed to Indian Country, which is now Eastern Oklahoma, they actually brought their slaves with them, and and so in eighteen sixty six, part of the the treaty making with those tribes, it actually uh, freed those those slaves that that came with the uh, five civilized tribes. And, and of course, you know, I'd say uh, quite a few of those people um, from, from what I understand, the, 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 they became freedmen. 
and and that's how they were referred to after after 1866. They referred to them as as freedmen. And in Oklahoma, there are still remnants of some freedmen towns where the um, the descendants of those freedmen um, still live today. Okay. And I think another reason they referred to them as the five civilized tribes was um, these tribes were, uh, some of them were practicing Christianity and, and um, were fluent in English, correct? That, that was also other factors? Yeah, and I think that led to some of the, the fact that um, the, um, some of them broke, broke off early, some of the full blood groups, and they started the migration. Um, you know, I, as I mentioned, I have been affiliated as counsel with the United Katua Cherokees, who were a group of people that came earlier. And so when they, from the area they were at, to the area in Arkansas and Oklahoma border, you know, it's hilly. It, it was it was a lot like home to them. And and when they came to these these groups, tended to be more of of full blood groups. They weren't the big plantation owners, and and so they knew what was coming down the pike with um, with with the whole idea of Indian removal, and and so they left on their own own accord. Okay, so um, bottom line is um, during the Trail of Tears, you have these five tribes that were forcibly removed to eastern Oklahoma, correct? Yes. And um, I guess in consideration, if you even want to use that term, they were, um, the, this treaty was established in 1866, giving them this land in eastern Oklahoma, correct? That's correct. And, and this land again, 19 million acres, 11 counties, the city of Tulsa, all are within this jurisdiction, correct? Yeah, within the Creek jurisdiction. If you take all five of the civilized tribes together, it, it's it's bigger than that. It, okay. it, literally, it literally is all of eastern Oklahoma from the north to the south. Okay. Now, why why was the Creek Nation given preference over the five tribes? I mean, are the other four tribes subject to the uh, Creek Nation's judicial system? Oh, no. So each one of the five tribes has their own jurisdictional boundaries. The, the difference in the McGirt case, you're just looking at the Creek Reservation. And so it, it's just one, one part of all of Eastern Oklahoma. It, it's just the it's just the part as you mentioned surrounding Tulsa. So if you go if you go from Creek Country, if you go to the north and the east, then that's the Cherokee area, and that is about fourteen counties. And then if you go then then you go south. You get the Seminoles and then the and then the Chickasaws and and the Choctaws. So it's it's a it's five big areas like like the creeks. Got it. That that's what confused me. Thanks for clearing that up. For for whatever reason, I was wondering why the creeks got um, preferential treatment over the uh, the five tribes, but that's not the case, right? 
No, no. They just through whatever negotiations were going on when they when they were moving the tribes here, they just um, they just established them in those areas. I an old tale I heard was they they tried to um, if you looked at where they were moving them in Indian territory and how they were situated in eastern United States, they tried to do that with four of them. Now the Seminoles are a whole different um, kettle of fish, if you will. Um, there was a group of Seminoles that are still in Florida, the same, you know, the same historical people, but they were able to uh, defeat the American military and they, the American military couldn't catch that group of Seminoles who hit out in the Everglades. And, you know, when the, they would have forays with the, uh, the American uh, military that was coming after them, they would lead them into the Everglades. Those groups would, <laughs> the American military groups would never make it out. So they quit, they quit chasing them. But the group, uh, the, but another group of them that they did, did subdue, they were the ones that are in Oklahoma now. Got it. Okay. So that lays some, some good foundation for this treaty in 1866. And again, we have a, a pretty creative, I believe it was a public defender, but um, yes, it, it was, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I just interviewed a public defender um, in my last interview and uh, yeah, I mean, you, you have to give credit where credit is due. Talk about thinking outside the box, right? Um, oh yes, and and uh, you know the the particular folks that that were working on these jurisdictionally, they they were um, they were folks that really had a good understanding of of Indian law. So it wasn't you know it was it was brilliant work, but it was work that they had been doing for for years and years. So it wasn't just something that that they had stumbled on. It was just something that Indian law practitioners had in Oklahoma had always oh, thought this, uh, this concept. Now, what, what has happened over the last few years is you, you actually do have more folks that are just Indian law practitioners. And, and so, you know, the more you study on something, the more you work on it, obviously the smarter you're going to get. So this, these, these two cases were just cases that had the right, facts at the right time to, to bring these arguments up. And, you know, these, these arguments have been, been made before in, in local courts all, all across Oklahoma. And, you know, they just, they, they never got this far. There was always an assumption, I think, on the part of the state of Oklahoma that the reservations had, had poofed, they had, they had gone away. And in fact, with the state of Oklahoma, part of their argument was not so much that that there was ever any real um, legislation or treaty that said they went away. It was just by operation of how things have gone. Almost like since the tribes didn't weren't able to keep the the whites out, then somehow they they lost that, even though there was no legal. Um, stricture that said they lost it. Right. And, and that gets us to this uh, Supreme Court case out of 1984. Um, 
that was the is it the Barnett or the Barlett case? Bar Bartlett. Yeah, Bartlett case. Bartlett, yeah. Yeah. Um, so that case says that um, Congress has to specifically disestablish um, a treaty or a reservation. Is that yes. accurate? Okay. So because Congress didn't do that with the uh, Creek Nation, that's why they threw out these convictions. Correct. Yes. If and we should yeah. oh, well, ahead. if it, like I, I pointed out earlier, every every tribe has their own unique relationship with the federal government. So that's why that that is it's so important because there are tribes who have language in their legislative relationship that that says specifically that your reservation boundaries are disestablished. So it, it's a case by case basis on it, on every tribe. Got it. Um, and we should say that um, in Mr. Murphy's case and Mr. McGirt's case, because these are um, felonies or serious offenses, um, they actually can still be tried but in federal court, is that accurate? Yes, that's, that's correct. And in fact, I think there was just a um, grand jury convened on um, related to McGirt. So, okay. right. So I, I, you know, there's a good part, I guess, if you're a criminal defense attorney of being able to establish that the state didn't have any jurisdiction over you because you were an Indian in Indian country. But that's just the first part of it. Now, the second part is that it that doesn't create a no man's land. What it creates is uh, another choice of jurisdiction. So if it's a major crime, a heinous crime, then the federal court is gonna have jurisdiction over that. If it's a minor, offense, uh, not, not a felony, then the tribal court is going to have jurisdiction over that. So, so there's no free ride out of, of this, which I think was one of the big concerns that, you know, there's going to be all these dismissals um, within Oklahoma Indian country, and then there's going to be this lawlessness, but that, that's never going to be the case. There's always going to be a place to try these people. So you just have another, another jurisdictional component that you got to take in mind when you decide what forum you're going to bring a charge against a, a person. Right. And we should emphasize that, you know, because the convictions were thrown out, they are entitled to the presumption of innocence as every criminal defendant. So um, these are now alleged. Um, but in any event, that's a good point. So that brings me to my next question. Um, do you believe that the, the tribal courts are in a position to handle these uh, lower offenses? Oh, yes. And, and this is always, I am, I'm really glad you brought this up because one of the things that I, I face almost every day, particularly not, not so much criminally, but even in um, commercial contracting, you know, uh, obviously, there's always an argument that we shouldn't have to go to to tribal court, 
because, you know, somehow a tribal court is inferior. That, that's not the case. The lawyers that practice in tribal courts are the same lawyers that practice in, in federal courts and state courts. They're, they're lawyers, they have law degrees. There, there aren't any tribes in Oklahoma that I know of that you can be quote unquote a lawyer without having a law degree and taking some bar exam. And now there's cases um, involving maybe domestic abuse where you can have an advocate and, and maybe the advocate can, can handle a, a, a smaller type of case under, but it, it, it's almost like an internship sometimes. But generally, if, you, if, if a guy on the street wanted to come in and practice and call a court, he couldn't do it. He's, he, he's either pro bono or he can't, he can't do it. You have to be credentialed lawyers. So the judges on, these, on our courts, the practitioners on the courts are all folks that, that have had the same law training as, as any other lawyer in, in, in our state. But I mean, are, are, are we going to see convictions? I mean, does this apply from like 1866 to 2020 for all the um, state court convictions <coughs> in Oklahoma? How does well, that I, think it, I think it may apply to everyone that's alive that sits an Indian that was convicted. Wow. And, and do yeah. we have any idea of, of how this is going to impact um, these jurisdictions? I mean, do they have uh, enough people to hear these cases? You know, I would, um, Attorney General Barr was in Oklahoma uh, on the Cherokee Reservation a couple of days ago. And so one of the ideas is that in recognition of, of what McGirt says, then obviously federal courts are going to have to, they're going to be faced with a lot of cases. And so they're, they're ramping, ramping those efforts up. There's coordinated efforts before, uh, particularly with the Cherokee Nation related to the bar visit, you know, uh, mutual, mutual programs to make sure that that when people get released, they they didn't get a free ride. They're going somewhere. They're going to have to repay their debt to society. As, as you mentioned, they're they're all uh, presumed to be. They, the case has to be proven against them. But there's going to be procedures in place to to do exactly that. So if, I, I think what's going to happen practically is you're going to have a lot of people that say, hey, you know, uncle's uh, Indian and, you know, he got a bad deal in state court and, and let's get him dismissed. You know, and he might he might have served 80 percent, 70 percent of his sentence. So are you want to going to do you want to trade that off uh, for, for a new federal conviction? So I think at some point there's going to be some some common sense and some reasonableness in this. It, it's going to take a while, but no one's going to get get a, a free ride out of this. As I think what happened with uh, the McGirt fellow is, you know, just as soon as he got released from state custody, he, he went to uh, federal custody and they're having a grand jury if they haven't already done that. Got it. And, and so again, so the, 
The serious offenses will now be heard by the federal government and the lesser offenses will be heard by the specific tribes. Is that accurate? Each it, tribe has be, their own system? Yeah, so, so tribes have limited criminal jurisdiction that's established by, by federal statute. So we can only keep them a certain period of time. We can only give them a certain sentence and we can, we can only um, fine them so much. So for, for non-major um, crimes, we, we have that capacity to do that. And that now, would be misdemeanors? Yeah, basically a misdemeanor. And in tribal courts, we've never really talked about misdemeanors and felonies because obviously because of the Major Crimes Act, the felonies, we don't have any, we don't have the authority over those. So, but it, it, it's, it's the same, it's the same concept. And are the courts similar to what you think of and see on TV? Yeah, if you walked into if you walked into any tribal court, it would be it'd look exactly like like any court you've ever been in. And some of them, the the Muscogee Creek, they have a they have a beautiful court. Um, our tribe two or three years ago, we actually redid our court. So so I guess they they look like white man courts. <laughs> okay. um, so this is a little troubling to me in, in doing the research. So that case, uh, the Supreme Court case, the Barnett case out of uh, 1984, that says that Congress can disestablish these treaties w whenever they want, basically. Am I yeah, so, that wrong? No, that's exactly, that's exactly right. And, and that goes back to until 1871, that that period of time from the establishment of the United States till 1871, the relationship between the federal government and tribal governments was more like a nation to nation thing. And but the treaty period, because over the years um, the federal government realized that the land the the lands that they had given tribes were were bigger than they anticipated they were going to need, and so with westward expansion, you needed to to continually make sure these these reservations are um, are carved up so white people can move on. So the this uh, the case in 1870 that's called the Cherokee Tobacco was a case where it was determined by the Supreme Court that acts of Congress could supersede a treaty. You know, when, when we think of treaties generally, we think of them as a two-sided agreement that, you know, both, both nations, both parties, to do a treaty, you have to be a nation and, or some kind of jurisdictional entity. But those, those generally are um, reciprocal agreements. Now, they weren't always that way with Indian tribes, but there was some sense that, you know, the tribes agreed to it, and there were all this language that says, you have this land, and, but, you know, and as, long as, as long as the grass grows on it, right? So there was, a, there was an actual understanding, a mutual understanding by two parties. So it was, a, it was more of an agreement. 
Now, when this Cherokee tobacco case came out, it, it, it got rid of that whole idea. So Congress can on through their authority, they can, um, they can supersede a treaty and, and, and basically I, I've never seen Congress give a tribe something more than they had in a treaty. So they're generally taking something away. Now, the interesting thing about the Cherokee tobacco case was it involves, it involves Cherokees in Arkansas and the Indian Territory at the time who were, were manufacturing tobacco. Under the treaty, that tobacco, that tobacco sales was tax exempt. Then there was a act of Congress that made, made that uh, non-tax exempt anymore. Now, interestingly enough, two Cherokee individuals were the ones that were selling the tobacco. And one of them was Stan Wadey, who was a Confederate general. And the other one was Elias Budno, who had been a member of the House of Representatives of, of the Confederate States. So that I, as I looked at that case, it, it always seemed interesting to me that it was almost uh, a punitive thing because of, of what the, the history of, of the particular litigants more than just, you know, what, what the history of the law and, and jurisprudence was. So, you know, I always struck that up to the idea that it was because these particular fellows had, had, had fought for the South. Oh yeah. Facts matter. Facts can change a <laughs> whole case, right? Right. Yeah. I, but you know, that, that's so troubling because theoretically tomorrow Congress can void all these treaties, right? That's correct. And, and that's, that's a, that was always the fear of a, a guy like me is that there's always an invitation in these Indian law cases that if you, if you don't like the outcome, get Congress to change it. If you look at the Kiowa manufacturing case, and I, I can't remember exactly what the date of that one was. It was, it was in the 80s or, or 90s. Anyway, Scalia, uh, quite frankly, didn't like the outcome of that case. And he said, this is for Congress to do. It was an invitation to Congress to take some action. That was a sovereign immunity case. The same thing is, is apparent in, in this McGirt case that the, that the majority says, look, it's not for us to, to decide what happens hereafter. If Congress doesn't like it, you change it. So that that's... Well, the problem with that is um, the representation in Congress is pretty weak um, in terms of Native Americans being represented in either the House or the Senate. Is that a fair statement? Well, that's a that's a real fair statement. I think just the last, you know, the last uh, elections, we had a couple of uh, Native Americans that that were elected to to Congress. Uh, but yeah, there. One thing that's um, that I've never understood, particularly in reservation areas, um, up until just recently, um, tribal folks just didn't run for Congress. Now that's changed. And I think you're going to see that happen a lot more. And, and just as a side note, I, I think this is something that maybe historians out there that might be listening to this. We've actually had a Native American in the White House. He was a vice president, a fellow by the name of Charles Curtis. 
who actually is is a cousin of mine. We came wow. from the same relative. He he was a he's he's call. He was uh, vice president. Who did he, who did he serve with? Hoover. <laughs> oh, Hoover. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> I was wondering why you didn't mention that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I remember but, reading about the Hoover. I think there's, there's been, there's, there's more efforts. Um, you know, actually we have two congressmen from NR5 in Oklahoma that, that are uh, one of them's Cherokee and, and one of them's Chickasaw. And then there's a congresswoman from Kansas who's native, um, congresswoman from uh, New Mexico that's native. And, and then I think there's a couple more that are card-carrying Indians. But, yeah, we're, we're terribly underrepresented. Yeah, and that's, that's such a shame. Um, I have a couple ideas on how to fix Congress, but um, <laughs> getting back, no, <laughs> getting back we to all. the <laughs> Yeah. Getting back to the uh, Native Americans and, and their representation, I mean, there should be a permanent block in both the House and the Senate. We should figure that out because of the genocide that, you know, your people's numbers are greatly reduced. And so there needs to be some sort of fix to that. We will benefit greatly if there's more Native Americans in Congress. I mean, this is really important stuff. We can learn a lot, even out here in California, what's going on right now. Um, we are just being destroyed with wildfires. And um, I read a really interesting article the other day about um, the Native American tribes in California and how they did these controlled burns. And so, you know, this is this is important stuff. This is a part of our history and, and we can greatly benefit. I think it will greatly benefit our country if um, Native Americans are better represented in our government? Oh, I would certainly agree. And in fact, the, the Cherokees and one of their, the, the acts of Congress, they actually were, um, were given a representative and they, they actually have a, a representative without portfolio that's not recognized by Congress, but, you know, part of the, in the treaty making and all that, they, 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 among some other tribes were given the right to have, have representatives to Congress. So, you know, well, I know the Cherokees named that person, that person, you know, had worked for Congress. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens with that, which would be great to have someone like that. And, and, and then get back to your idea about the, you know, Native Americans, quaintly, everyone always talks about how we have an association with the land. And, you know, it's, it's really true. I mean, it's always part of our culture. And, you know, here in Oklahoma, we do controlled berms all the time. It's just no, on our lands, it's no big deal. You know, we, we have wildfires, we have lightning, we have people throwing cigarettes out of their car. So we anticipate that, and and we have controlled burns all the time. Farmers do it all the time. It's 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 not. It's always strange for us when when we see what happens on the West Coast because you know we we have big fires too, but um, it's it's nothing like what they have out there. And yeah, we 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 do control burns every season. Yeah, you know, that's one factor. There's many other factors, but um, I, I definitely feel like we would benefit from uh, a Native perspective and how they've dealt with the land 
um, a lot longer than we have, right? Yes, and, and you know, one thing that um, we we do, and most tribes have robust EPA programs, and you know, we we actually get um, there there are grants available for these things. One of the outcomes of McGirt was our governor um, went to um, he he went to the EPA director and is trying to get some authority over our land, and there's there's this horror story about our land's going to be used to dump, you know, industrial or, or uh, chemical waste. And so that's something where, you know, we just, there was a lot of correspondence today about. So it, it, it's always interesting to guys my age, and there's not that many of us left that have practiced this long in Indian land, but we're always worried when something good happens for us in a, <laughs> in a Supreme Court case or, you know, just any anytime something good happens to us, it's like, oh, heck, you know. Wait, wait, you're, you're skeptical of the U.S. government? Uh, yeah, <laughs> believe it or not. <laughs> yeah, well, understandable. Um, you know, another thing I was thinking about of just practical things, um, practical laws that, that we could change to help Native Americans. Um, you know, another loophole for the federal government is going to be the Fifth Amendment taking clause. Um, I don't see that that should not apply to uh, Native American land, in my opinion. Well, here's it. When, when McGirt first came out and, and old gray hairs like me were thinking, okay, what's what bad things are going to happen next so if you if you think about a reservation and you think about the old bundle of sticks that you have and it's not just the surface area it's the areas underneath and and even in today's world i i argue that you know when when we got our reservations we also had air rights because it, they were never severed so this whole idea of the old Tiny um, English idea of you know you own the the land from heaven to hell right so if you think of it if you think of it that way then when if you have this reservation and you have all those bundle of sticks intact then what about environmental quality what about water quality what about uh, all those other issues you know who's are and whose purview are those. And that's where this recent EPA action or potential action is going on right now. It's it's going to affect water quality, air quality, and and so who who gets to make those determinations on Indian lands? Now, if there is some congressional action related to severing those things from from our bundle of sticks, I would argue that yeah, that's 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 they took something from us. And so there's got to be some some way to recover that. Now, tribes went through this uh, whole 50 years of trying to get redress for grievances. And, you know, my tribe, we got paid for thousands of acres in, in Kansas, but they only in, included the amount of the land at the time of the taking and didn't include any interest. So it turned out to be a pittance. Hmm. So... You know, I, I always worry about that kind of thing. But what this 
what this McGirt does, it, it establishes it establishes a jurisdictional area and an area of potential ownership. And so what happened? How did that how did that land get away from the tribes? Was it was it done correctly? Was it's going to it's going to create a whole nother um, uh, kind of law, I think, unless Congress unless Congress uh, extinguishes these jurisdictional areas. Well, that's why this is such a, a significant case. And on one hand, it's it's good that um, these issues are bring um, getting brought to the public eye, you know, so we can um, see the struggles that Native Americans are, are still going through. I just read another article about uh, distance learning and how that's really having a disproportionate impact on um, the Native American community. You know, they... It's kind of like out here in California with the uh, Hispanic community. There were um, some pictures that went viral of um, some kids sitting in the street of uh, uh, Taco Bell in the in the back parking lot because that was the only place they could get internet connection. Well, in in this eastern part of Oklahoma that we're talking about, there are some pretty remote areas. And, you know, there was, I recall going to um, a tribal council meeting for the Katuas in, in one of their districts. And uh, there was one payphone for the whole community at a little gas station. And there was no cell penetration because <laughs> you just couldn't, it was in the middle of a mountainous area. There were no lines of people in these areas, I could take, if you, if you came to Tulsa, I could drive you an hour away to places where, where people still um, have uh, uh, wood fires. They don't have any type of utilities and it's on Indian lands in, in these areas. So it's just, you know, just the fact that these people don't necessarily have, have heat and, and telephone lines, you know, the whole idea of internet, that's that's like science fiction out there. <laughs> okay, so um, this next question, um, why should everyday Americans care about this Supreme Court case? And if you were president, what would you do? Or, or what, I guess a better question would be, what, what could um, regular Americans do to help the Native American community? So say the first part of that again. When you said president, I kind of blanked out there for a minute. <laughs> That's fine. You can answer this however you want, but um, in your opinion, why should everyday Americans care about this um, recent U.S. Supreme Court case? And the second prong to that would be, what do you rec What would you do, or what could everyday Americans do to help uh, the Native American community? All right. The the first one I think goes to the idea of what your what your government stands for. These treaties were solemn promises. They they were promises that were written down and and negotiated to some extent. They were things that said these things our government promises you. They were promises made by the government reduced to writing. They were treaties. And they have arbitrarily just ignored those for, for years. 
And so I think the importance to a regular American citizen is, oh, heck, if the government makes a promise to me, then is it any good or not? And, and how can you have confidence in a system that doesn't live up to its word? And, and that's, I think, the, the, to a guy like me, that's the crux of this argument is it's not about these different ways you can figure out how to pass a law and all that. It's are you, are you a country that, that makes promises and, and doesn't keep them or do you keep them? And, and how as an American does that make me feel to know that this promise that was made, it didn't work out for white America, so we're just going to change it arbitrarily on a one-sided deal. We're not even going to have a negotiation. So that's, that, that's probably that, that's my answer to the first question. Now, the second, the second question, I think at different times, um, particularly, I, I think President Clinton started this where he would have bring tribal leaders in to DC and there'd be a big, you know, mashup where everyone got together and, and, you know, talked about where the problems for Indian country and, you know, the problems, the problems in Indian country in 1994 are the same problems in Indian country in, in 2020. And it goes back to this idea of, you know, some tribes don't want to assimilate completely there we have cultural attributes and we we want to maintain those and then and without those cultural attributes if you don't have those what good is it being a being a tribe so those those problems those problems we had then are, are still existing problems so i i think what what if i was president the first thing i would do is i would totally restructure the BIA, uh, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which was an outcome of the Indian relationships from the War Department. So the BIA used to be part of the War Department, if you will. And BIA around here, it means boss Indians around, it, not Bureau of Indian Affairs, but for, for every dollar that is appropriated for tribal governance, tribal help, by the time it gets down to us in Call City, Oklahoma, 93 cents of it have been spent on bureaucracy. Wow. So if, if you really wanted to be a president that, that helped Indians, you would, number one, you would recognize the treaty obligations. That would be number one. And then number two, you would say, you have a jurisdictional area you take care of it, you enter into agreements with us. So people that go into your areas are have health and safety uh, protections, but that that's yours, you take care of it, it's your problem. That's all we want is self-governance. We just, we don't need that the more the government gives us, the more we become dependent on, upon that. We just, we just want them to say, hey, here's, Here's your new treaty, and and this time we we really mean it, and um, you're all grown up. Exercise self governance over it. Well said. 
Um, I, I think this is a very important episode, very interesting case out of the Supreme Court impacting uh, Eastern Oklahoma. Um, I want to thank you for your perspective. I want to thank you for your 30 years of work on this issue. And I uh, really appreciate you taking the time to be on this podcast. Well, I appreciate you uh, you having this. Is uh, I, hopefully um, it'll it'll lead to some discussions among people and uh, maybe maybe uh, give a different perspective on this. Thanks, Ken. Thank you. The information provided in this podcast does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all information, content, and materials available on this podcast are for general informational purposes only. Information in this podcast may not constitute the most up-to-date legal or other information. Listeners of this podcast should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. No reader or listener to this podcast should act or refrain from acting on the basis of information on this podcast without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Only your individual attorney can provide assurances that the information contained herein and your interpretation of it is applicable or appropriate to your particular situation. Use of and access to this podcast or any of the resources contained within the podcast do not create an attorney-client relationship. The views expressed at or through this podcast are those of the individual author writing in their individual capacities only, not those of their respective employers. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this podcast are hereby expressly disclaimed. The content on this posting is provided as is. No representations are made that the content is error-free.